The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Before I get started with the talk tonight, I'd just like to check in, see if anybody has any questions about sitting practice, meditation practice that you'd like to bring up based on the instructions given tonight or just your own experience in your sit tonight or through the last couple weeks. Anything coming up that's confusing or anything need to be clarified about basic instructions? Mm-hmm. Maria? interesting like why we do things that are destructive and why we don't do things that we know are wholesome you know isn't that interesting it's interesting to me when I see myself doing things that are not so wholesome and see myself not doing things that are wholesome and just to be reflective about that is a good first step you know what are the forces that keep me doing things that aren't so wholesome and, and what are the forces that keep me from doing things that are wholesome and to see them clearly without being afraid and to even accept them you know the interesting things about unwholesome and wholesome forces is the seeing wholesome forces wholesome habits clearly strengthens them and seeing the unwholesome habits clearly weakens them So even in not practicing, if we bring mindfulness to the not practicing, things get cleared up. And I really appreciate your Wednesday nights and your Sunday mornings. You know, like notice how wholesome that feels, how good it feels to do that. And be really patient. It's nice to set the intention, even if you don't follow through with it. It's still better to set the intention, I will sit today. It's my intention to sit today. To really connect with that force in your mind that you see this as a good, wholesome thing to do, and right now it's your intention to do it. Set that intention. Even if you don't follow through with it, keep setting it. Hang out with other people who sit. That's a good one. Really. The more of your friends who are sitters, the more likely it will be that you'll sit. The fewer the people around you sit, the fewer fewer and the less people around you sit, the less likely it will be that you'll sit. Any other thing? But tonight is a a good topic, although it's interesting, uh, chapter 6 in Ajahn Sumero's book that we've been following, The Mind and the Way, 
is on nibbana. So nibbana is the same as nirvana. One nirvana is Sanskrit and nibbana is Pali. And uh, it's interesting. We're a little bit afraid of talking about these words, enlightenment or liberation. But you know. Um, we're doing something, you know, we come here to practice, and there's a goal. I know we often talk about non-attainment or about being goal-oriented gets in the way, and it's true. But it's also a problem not to think we're doing something. We are doing something here. We are seeking the liberation of the heart, the freedom of the heart. There is something we're trying to do. And so we give that a word, Nibbana, and it's a, it's a good word, you know, as I... Uh, talk about this word the whole idea is to help us clarify what we're doing but the more we're clear about what we're doing the more we can just do that without being caught by the concept of what we're doing or the goal or the idea of what we're going to get but initially we have to have some sort of sense of what we're doing here with our meditation practice and then more generally just trying to live a wholesome life so one of the most common definitions of nibbana, uh, the word itself means to extinguish or to cease, but it's important to understand what ceases. And so one definition is not bound to conditions that arise and pass. So it's the harder mind that isn't bound, isn't grasping or clinging to the conditions of the present moment. <clears throat> That's what Nibbana is. It's a heart and mind free of attachment. Now that, we can get quite attached to that idea, but we can also use it to orient how we are in the moment. You see all that definition? It's like, well, we can start to play with this right now, like to be in this moment without being bound up, without being attached or clinging to anything. I mean, we can imagine, and it's useful, I think, to imagine what that would be like. It's sort of orienting the mind in that direction. What is it like? What would it be like right now not to be clinging to anything, not to be bound up with ideas, with any pattern of reactivity? What would that be like? So in Ajahn Sumedho's book, he has some nice comments right at the beginning, which I'll read. So again, this is chapter 6, and he says, We use the word Nibbana for the goal of our meditation, which is to realize non-attachment. Now, he didn't say to... Um, be non-attached, but it's a, or to become non-attached. In a way, we have to be careful because otherwise we'll try to imitate non-attachment. We'll be sitting here thinking attachment is bad, non-attachment is good. So I'll pretend, I'll uh, try to be non-attached. But it's not about trying to be non-attached because that's a, a type of attachment, isn't it? Like, I want to be non-attached. And then we get tight about it. It actually contracts the mind when we want to be not attached. So he, he says to realize non-attachment. So it's a little different 
We need to realize non-attachment. And he goes on. As unenlightened human beings, we tend to attach to things out of ignorance, out of not understanding things properly. We're always attaching and grasping at everything. However, when we realize non-attachment, we experience Nibbana. Sometimes Nibbana is translated as extinction, so it sounds rather forbidding, like annihilation. But it does not require that we, but it does not require that we annihilate things, only that we let go of our attachment to them. Nibbana refers to the realization human beings have when they are not grasping anything. So I'll say, I'll read that again. Nibbana refers to the realization human beings have when they are not grasping anything. In that realization of non-grasping, one experiences a connection. So we can say that the reason we don't have a connection, we don't feel connected, is because we're busy grasping or clinging or being attached or identified with whatever, mind states, for example. And because of that activity of clinging or grasping, the experience of being whole or the experience of being connected or whatever you want to call it is absent. One, so I'm just continuing. In that realization of non-grasping, one experiences a connection. One is in alignment with the divine because when there is non-grasping, there is the real experience of compassion. One feels compassion, joyfulness, happiness, and serenity, not because of any personal attainment or achievement, but because there is nobody there. There is no grasping of the body as self. There is no grasping of views or opinions or feelings or anything else. There is simply non-grasping. When you realize non-grasping, you experience true, true ease, peacefulness, and bliss. But this state of happiness is not the usual one for human beings. We must train the mind and heart to realize it. So this is sort of interesting. There's a goal, you know, the goal of Nibbana, or you could say the goal of non-attachment or non-clinging. But it isn't a something. But just because it isn't a something, it doesn't mean that we're not practicing for some fruit. Speaking of fruit, you know, the one image, I forget where I heard this, but, you know, we can imagine a bowl of fruit, and then a little later somebody takes all the oranges out of that bowl of fruit, and then we see the bowl of fruit again without the oranges. And there's a, a, a significant change from the bowl of fruit with the oranges to the bowl of fruit without the oranges. But if somebody says to us, tell me, you know, pointing to the bowl of fruit without the oranges, tell me what's special about this bowl of fruit. Well, it's not about what's there, it's about what's not there. So this is what we mean by non-attainment. It's not that in our meditation practice or in our spiritual life, we're out to get something for Mark. I need something. There's something missing in my life called happiness or ease or peace or compassion. So I'm out looking for it to get it for myself. And then that would be like we're trying to be able to have something. 
but that's not the practice. It's really uh, using the process of being awake, seeing things clearly, to let go of something. We're, we're letting go of something very particular, like the oranges. And so in a moment when we let go of the oranges, it's not like we can see what's there that's so special. There isn't anything special. What was special, I mean, if we want to say something was special, it's in what's not being done in that moment. We're not putting oranges in the bowl. That's what's special. And so here the oranges are all of our self-centered grasping, you know, all the self-centeredness that comes out of fear and the self-centeredness that comes out of or is expressed as wanting or needing or not seeing clearly. So this, it's this particular feature of Nibbana that's often confusing. Nibbana is often, the concept of Nibbana is often connected with the concept of anatta or the not-self characteristic, the impersonal, conditional quality of experience. There's a famous passage from the Vasudhimaga. It's a meditation manual that was written several hundred years after the time of the Buddha. And uh, Buddha Gosa says in that manual, he wrote, mere suffering exists, no sufferer is found. The deed is, but no doer of the deed is there. Nibbana is, but the person, but not the person that enters it. The path is, but no traveler on it is seen. And that's why I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Um, it's not it's not really correct to say that I'm enlightened or somebody's enlightened. There are, the way that it, maybe it's more useful to say there are enlightened moments. In other words, there are moments where a particular heart-mind, like this one or that one, there are moments when that mind or that heart is free of self-centered grasping or free of clinging, free of attachment. And that's a moment of enlightenment, let's say, or nibbana. And there are moments where that mind or heart is clinging. And that's what we call an ordinary mind, conventional mind. But in that moment where there's no clinging, it's not really correct to say that Mark or, you know, Mary is enlightened. Because in that moment, that mind-heart isn't projecting a center in that experience. There isn't a projection, a sense of whatever this experience is that it's happening to somebody, to me. There's just experiencing without the mind projecting a center to the experience. So it doesn't make sense to say, oh my God, I'm enlightened. That's called judgment or identification. And it usually comes hand in hand with suffering. Maybe it's subtle at first, but before long we want to tell the world, you know, and rent the billboard, I'm enlightened. <laughs>
So last, uh, not last week, because uh, um, last Wednesday, those of you who were here, Kevin Griffin spoke. But two weeks ago, when I was again giving a talk from this book, we, it was really about right view. And generally, right view is no view. I mean, in essence, living with right understanding or right view means not depending on a particular orientation. So our view, if we want to call it anything, our view is to be open. So our, you know, as an ego, the ultimate stance of an ego, the healthiest stance of an ego is to be open. Because openness, non-clinging, leads to insight and to freedom and to true compassion. So uh, this is our view. And... The question is, once we get a little bit of a sense of this, even if it's just intellectual, then the question is, why not just start reflecting on it? Like right now, I mean, we can take, let's do it. Let's take a minute or two minutes and just reflect on the possibility of being here in this moment with openness as our only stance. So non-attachment, you can use whatever words you like, non-clinging, non-attachment, non-grasping, openness. But just take a particular word and then just turn toward your experience and just practice realizing that way of being and realizing what gets in the way of that way of being. Any thoughts about that? What did you notice? Any resistance? <laughs> Any freedom? Bonnie? notice that because the mind is 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 sticky it's it uh, it wants to grip it wants ground yeah and so and so and so the the question is can you open to that stickiness itself because that's what 
that's what's presenting itself in the moment. So that's what's asking for openness, like to let things be sticky. So this is the trick. It's like we have in when we take openness as the stance or non-clinging or non-resisting as the stance, that means everything's allowable. That means we have to let go of our ideas of what enlightenment or freedom is like as an experience and just, in a sense, trust openness or non-resistance, non-controlling. Even if what we're opening to seems like just the opposite of enlightenment. Any other experiences that people would like to share in that short reflection? Mm-hmm. The, the analyzing mind takes over. It's like, okay, is yeah. this open? Is this open? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How will I know it when I see it? <laughs> yeah, but as soon as you recognize that, you can, you know, I used to call that coach, my coach, my Dharma coach. Um, and you, you can just look at that. It's an expression of tightness in the mind, right? And just look at that. Can this be okay? You know, wanting to do it right, wanting to do it before anybody else does it, or, you know, whatever, whatever that might be about. Mm-hmm. Maria? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't really aware that it wasn't that logical, but I could see by yeah. creating thoughts that disappeared into the, that sort of way of And see, this is the crux of our predicament. If we could keep the uh, an authentic reflection, an authentic interest in freedom and non-grasping, non-contraction. If we could keep some sort of thread of this practice going through our lives, we'd make tremendous, I hate to use the word, but progress. I mean, things would actually transform. But it's really hard to, to kind of stay with it because to a mind like we have, Everything is an exit from this road. <laughs> it's like one exit after another, one thing after another. And so, so much of the practice is picking our heart mind up and reorienting it back toward practice. This way of being, you know, that is about reflecting. And specifically, we're reflecting on contraction and the absence of contraction, or the Four Noble Truths, Dukkha, the cause, the cessation or end of Dukkha, right? That's what we're reflecting on. That's our basic practice, is we use this capacity to see clearly, to reflect on the moment-to-moment experience of this internal experience of tightness or suffering, but in a, in a very specific internal way. We don't need to think about suffering in some conceptual way, like there are a lot of people starving. or But right in the moment, the mind, this mind heart is entangled, weighed down, burdened. And to be reflecting on that, what sets that burden, that bound upness in motion, and what leads to it not being bound up. And if we could just maintain this reflection, powerful things would happen. And even in the course of a sit, I mean, 
we're going to not be there most of the time. But even if we're there for moments, just a few moments in the course of a 30 or 45 minute sit, real powerful changes can begin to happen in our lives. Just from engaging uh, deeply this reflection for a few seconds here, and then 10 minutes later, a few seconds there, and just piecing together moments of really being there and reflecting on suffering, clinging, and non-suffering, openness, non-attachment. And like Bonnie was suggesting, you know, one of the, the tricks is, is to understand suffering in its very essence as a mental fixation or contraction or help. Somehow the mind is held or it has weight. Our thoughts, ideas have weight. And anything like that, then if we learn very quickly, we can see this is dukkha before it needs to get really entangled and heavy and big. We can start catching it really early. Like anything that the mind is um, established on, fixed on, that, even though it's subtle, is already dukkha. It's already suffering. And so that's because that's relatively easy to let go of, to open up. But when we're totally caught up in the story of this person has done this to me and I should do this, and that's that's so entangled. It's like hard to get back to the contraction that we need to open to. And it's like I said before, it's like when we're in that place, every avenue for the mind is just another entanglement. I mean, every route we see feeds the system. It's really hard to know how to work with it. So the key is to work with things before they get really worked up and entangled. It's not easy to work with things when the mind is completely entangled. So uh, one way that Nibbana's talked about is the unconditioned. So we have the conditioned and the unconditioned. Conditioned here means sankaras. Sankaras usually is translated as mental formations. Now, everything is a mental formation. That sound is a mental formation, right? It arises in the mind. The thought is a mental formation. Touching is mental formation. So all these mental formations, uh, we call these the conditions of the present moment. And when we take ourselves to be the conditions of the present moment, that means we're entangled. The heart is entangled with the conditions. Like right now, when we notice our experience right now, we've got sort of mental stuff going on and we have physical stuff going on. And we uh, conventionally, you know, the ordinary ignorant mind, which we all have, almost always, this mind, we take ourselves to be these conditions, right? Or either we own these conditions, or we're in the middle of these conditions, or these conditions are somehow a reflection of us. But somehow the sense of Mark or the sense of self is related to the conditions of the present moment, right? So, Nibbana 
the goal, if you want to say, of practice, what the practice is about, is to realize the unconditioned. So we have the condition, which is all the things that are being known in the present moment. And then there is the unconditioned. So the unconditioned is, I mean, this isn't exactly right, but I think it's a useful way to begin to reflect on this is, well, there are things being known in the present moment, the conditions are being known, but known by what? Now, you, we'd say, well, known by me, but that's a thought that's being known, but as an experience. So that kind of points us in the direction of the unconditioned, because it can't be known. But it doesn't mean it's not there. Knowing is happening. So what is knowing without the conditions that are being known? I mean, this is just a concept. These are words. But it, it kind of points the mind. You see how it points the mind in a direction? Like, what is knowing without an object? And this is what we practice realizing. And people talk about this. You know, when I meet people in practice, and of course in my own practice, they may not describe it in sort of Buddhist terminology, but they talk about this all the time. This creeping experience of spaciousness for people who do regular practice over the years. There's sort of a creeping, <laughs> I'm saying that word to be provocative, it's not really scary. <laughs> but there's just a sense of uh, more space in the mind, less reactivity that just sort of grows on us the more we cultivate mindfulness in our lives. And you can't find it. You can't actually point your finger at what's changing. But something's happening. There's a you know, these again are just words, but you could say there's an intuitive understanding of the unconditioned that begins to grow. Our intuitive faith or confidence in the unconditioned. The space or the essence of the heart. A heart that's, uh, a heart that has nothing to do with the particular conditions in the moment. And the way we wake up to this is we practice seeing the conditions clearly. This is the trick. We can't go directly there. Because you know what that would be? Wanting to go directly to the unconditioned is called attachment. It means we have an idea of enlightenment or an idea of the unconditioned as being a good place like heaven. And we want to get there. And that's just having an idea. It doesn't matter if you call it the unconditioned. It's no longer the unconditioned. It's an idea which is conditioned. It's a sankara. It's a mental formation called nibbana, heaven, perfection. And then we want it. And then we're back. And it doesn't matter if you want nibbana or you want a new car. It's really the same thing. It's suffering. So... The way that we realize Nibbana is we start to see clearly the conditions, like the conditions of sensation. I've got some strange sensations 
I've had a bad cold over about a month ago, but still my seems like my ear canals still have a mild infection or a low-grade infection. So, you know, I've got these sensations here. So I'm learning to see these conditions as they actually are. Now, what I can do if I'm not careful is I'll feel those conditions and I'll immediately kind of fall into a story about, oh, I'm still sick. Why doesn't this darn cold go away? You know, or blame myself or blame this or that because of this cold or causing the continuation of this cold. And then it's just a lot of contraction. But instead, I can just look at the conditions as conditions. And what do I see? Well, I see the changing nature, the insubstantial nature. It like grows and gets intense. And then in another moment, it can be like nowhere to be found. And then it comes back, it gets lighter, it gets harder, it, gets, it just keeps changing. So it actually isn't a thing, it's an unfolding stream of happening, unfolding stream of sensations. And it's unreliable. It, it can't be uh, turned into anything that's reliable. And that's unsatisfying. Like, even if it were sort of constantly bad, at least I could feel sorry for myself. Or sort of, you know, I'm the sick person. But it's, it, things keep changing, so we can't even define it because it's already changed. And it's not in anybody's control. So the more we see conditions of our mind, the conditions of our body, the visual experience around us, the auditory experience, the more we see how insubstantial it is. And this is really important because this is how we realize Nibbana. There's only one thing in the way of the experience of Nibbana or freedom. And that's this the mind fixing on a particular condition, like a thought, and then taking that thought as, you know, me or mine, and I have to follow through with it or get attached to it or grab a hold of it. And so the more we understand conditions as being insubstantial and not self, but just the dance, just the unfolding of the lawful unfolding of causes and conditions, the more that we're not confused by the particular conditions of the moment. And so it's almost like seeing right through them. We still see the people in the room. We still notice the thoughts that are in the mind. We still feel sensations of the body. But the mind isn't getting caught with the experience of life, with experiencing. It's not confused by it. It doesn't fix on it. And it's like it sees right through it into the experience of Nibbana. It's nothing that can be grasped. It's not even that the heart or mind sees something. But the experience is freedom. It's the freedom of not grabbing hold, not reacting to the conditions. That's the peace. The peace and freedom is in what we don't do. It's in the not grasping, the not clinging. That happens naturally when we continue, continually reflect on the particular conditions of the moment. If we could just be inspired to do this 
as much as possible in her life to keep coming back. Oh, it's like this. Conditions are like this. This is how it is now. This is what Ajahn Sumedho says. The need to identify with and belong to some condition or some position falls away. We're no longer looking for ourselves or trying to find names for ourselves or trying to identify ourselves with anything whatsoever. This is the freedom, the liberation from attachment to conditions that leads to Nibbana. <coughs> Let me just read that again. The need to identify with and belong to some condition or some position falls away. We're no longer looking for ourselves or trying to find names for ourselves or trying to identify ourselves with anything whatsoever. This is the freedom, the liberation from attachment to conditions that leads to Nibbana. that we can uh, motivate ourselves is just to have a set of tools or skillful means to reorient the mind in this way, to reorient the mind toward this reflection on the condition. So again, what we're trying to do is not go directly to Nibbana because an ego who wants Nibbana, that's grasping, wants freedom or heaven, that's grasping that instead is to get interested in the conditions that are right here and now. So this is what Ajahn Sumedho says about that ongoing reflection. If you learn to calm the mind, you begin to sense a continuous awareness that is firm, stable, and constant. It is based on simply knowing and being alert, rather than on concepts, ideas, views, and emotions which come and go you begin to know that this is the way it is. This sense of knowing what people sometimes describe as suchness, or, and this is my favorite, as it isness. <laughs> but it's a useful word. And if it, no really, if it works for you, then use it, as it isness. And it's based in the moment as it is now. Consider what happens to your mind when I say, this is the way it is now. I'm not telling you how it is or how you should see it or feel it. I'm not telling you what you should be experiencing. I'm not pointing to any object or anything at all or, des or describing the experience in any way. I'm just saying, this is the way it is now, the suchness as it is now. When I use this thought, I open the mind. I feel more with the moment, receptive to what's happening, rather than looking for something to fix on. I'm not trying to describe the moment, but just open to it so the mind can go quite empty. The thought process stops and the mind opens. This is the way it is. With this sense of awareness, we can reflect on the way it is at this time. There is breathing. There's the body, there's a body here, there are feelings in the body, there's silence, 
the time is now the place is here this is the way it is now can you just imagine if we could if all of us could do this like to just took this up and really made it our life how it would change us and it would change the world around us too it's hard to get all worked up all caught up if we're doing this kind of reflection this is how it is now all of our really afflictive states require that we're completely lost or caught up in it meaning exact opposite we don't know this is how it is now we're basically caught in a nightmare or a scary movie So I think um, what's really useful is to, because uh, this way of reflecting can sound so ordinary, we have to be honest with ourselves that it's not ordinary. Human beings, you know, this particular human being right here is not in the habit of doing this kind of reflection. So even though the mind might tell us, or thinking mind might say, well, yeah, I mean, I'm aware, I'm being mindful. The fact is we're not seeing the conditions of the present moment as conditions that are coming and going, that are unsatisfying because of their coming and going, that they're insubstantial and conditional, they're not personal. Instead, we're very much fixated on particular conditions in every moment. It's almost like, you know, we sort of jump to this condition and cling, and then we another condition arises and we jump there, the mind jumps there and clings, and in a way we reestablish ourselves in relationship to one condition after another. I like this thought. I don't like this sensation. I don't like him or I don't like her. But there are just various conditions and then we create a sense of self dependent on that condition. And that's how we live our life. So, you thought, you know, in the course of the talk tonight and reading from Ajahn Sumedha's book, you've heard several different phrases that can orient the mind toward a more reflective way of being reflecting on conditions, reflecting on the awareness that knows the conditions. And uh, see if one makes particular sense to you or it seems useful for you. And then just make a point of playing with it. You really have, use a light touch. Don't kind of like, I'm going to get somewhere with this practice. But just more a way of exploring your reality, your experience with it to bring some real authentic interest. So we're getting interested in the mind or interested in the heart. Not so much like trying to figure out the world, but just the world of our heart or the world of our mind. Really be, you know, keep it simple. And actually, our understanding of the world really deepens the more we understand our own mind. Because then we at least can begin to understand other people.
because we see, well, they're just the mind too. Anyway, I'll leave it here so that we have time to hear from one another. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share with the group from your own experiences in practice or just living your life or any questions about the talk that come to mind. I'm Mary. I wish you could say a little bit more in your initial reading from the book of the description of Anna. You talked about kind of the absolute self, but then you went to connectedness. Yeah. It to like, that's the part that it's easier for me to want to try and understand or desirable. <laughs> yeah. But you see, Mark or Mary, who wants to know that connectedness or that wholeness, you know, that mystical experience of union, you know, as most religious spiritual traditions talk about, you see what a setup it is because already I'm defining the moment as being apart, right? I, I feel my alienation or my whatever we're feeling, apartness. I feel that and I want some wholeness. I want that. But it's like the the movement itself sort of confirms our alienation, our apartness. So so what we're what we're doing instead is we're getting interested in the experience of apartness of separateness because that's what we're feeling that's what's happening right now and the more we see that as conditions so those that experience of feeling apart or separate is just made up of mental formations like everything all experience is just some flow of mental formations coming and going just like the feeling of alienation is so we get interested in that and we practice seeing those conditions as conditions in the moment. Mental formations, not being confused, so not taking them as self, not fixating on them, not grabbing a hold of them, not being attached or identified with them, but just seeing them as conditions that come and go. Then the whole experience of being a part of separate begins to be transparent. The mind's not fixing on it. It's not a problem. So that mystical union that we, as an ego, go looking for in the holy books or with holy people and keep missing it because we're looking outside of the moment for it. And here it is in the experience of not being confused by the experience of alienation or the experience of separateness. So you kind of address the, the path. And I, guess, uh-huh. I mean, I understand joking, that's my desire.
Thinking about the result doesn't lead to the result. It leads to attachment. Yeah, so that's why there's not an emphasis on talking about. That's why the goal is put in the negative, right? As opposed to positive, like heaven, you know, creating a noun. This is, in, you know, and now we translate the word as enlightenment, but that's not a correct translation of the word. It's, it means cessation. It's the cessation of grasping, of clinging, of the mind fixating on any conditions. Mm -hmm. I forgot your name again. I'm sorry. Jenny. Jenny that's right. I don't this is maybe way off. Um, I'm just trying to figure out, in the tradition, is the idea, or whatever, the concept of doing this is that the idea that by, you know, from the moment you're born, you're you're collecting all this baggage and that's what makes you interpret the world and get attached and unattached and stuff, or is, and you're trying to get back to, you know, what you were before you were born, which was kind of a simpler, this expansive theme, or is the idea, the tradition that you're actually trying to, or you're not trying to, but you're, there's a realization that by dropping all that baggage that's happening to you in the world, you can expand what the, the spirit is or what, you know, that essential non-attached or non, you know, whatever, you just, you can expand what the essence is so you're actually, there's actually progress being made and kind of an evolutionary, since I'm talking kind of a science, you know mm -hmm. I think so. You're trying to get back to something simpler that you are as a core being. I've, I've read it that way, but a lot of it seems like if you look at if you believe in evolution, mm -hmm. you all animals. You know, you think dogs as a, a Buddha kind of being, but they're so focused on. You know, I mean, all animals, all living beings are focused on attachment and getting what the basic things are we desire. But it seems mm -hmm. like this is kind of going beyond it, so it's actually a, a progression to get getting to something bigger in some, I yeah. don't want to call it gain or goal, but you know what I'm asking? Or I think so. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, there's a couple ways of looking at this, but from our conventional view, I think that the last thing you said would be correct, that um, there's not a lot of potential in an, you know, we're just guessing about an animal's mind. I haven't been inside of an animal's, well, this animal, but a more simple animal, an animal without a complicated language. Um, but it seems like uh, it's true. There, There is a certain, we can look at a wild animal and we can see a certain freedom because, because their minds are more simple or their language is simple or non-existent then they can't complicate their life with a lot of uh, mental turmoil. But their mind is, it seems, continually fixing on one condition after another. So even though they may not have some of the turmoil, they're very limited. And, uh, and they're, they're basically survival machines. That's what an animal is. And then uh, as we develop you know, as the mind uh, is less simple and more has sort of more degrees of freedom, we can create more vivid health for ourselves. But we can also begin to understand <clears throat> this very deep 
pattern of fixating on conditions in a way that we couldn't reflect on previously. We can actually reflect on that, and in reflecting on that, we can learn, the mind can learn not to be confused by conditions. And so that, if you want to call that a progression, that was the word you used. I think that's not an inappropriate word. But well, yes, but it's also talked about in another way too, which is that uh, that this whole process is itself impersonal and inherently free. So it's it's not that there's a somebody Jenny who then realizes that she's not bound anymore. It's more that Jenny realizes that Jenny was never bound. That that itself is not, that, that, that idea that Jenny is bound and needs to be unbound itself is delusion or illusion. So there's different ways, you know, it kind of depends on the angle you're talking about it. So I want to be careful that people don't think that okay, we're all screwed up, and if we practice, we won't be so screwed up. But given that we think we're screwed up, it's useful to practice. <laughs> but, but the instruction to practice is a skillful means, meaning it's useful when we think we're screwed up to practice. But that doesn't mean that there's a, a screwed up being. I'm not, just because I'm saying where we should practice doesn't mean I'm saying we're screwed up beings because that isn't necessarily the right way to understand it. But practice is useful. Mm-hmm. In the back. You're going to need to speak up a little bit. Yeah, but but I, but I think I would correct a little bit what you said about um, that that state of openness. It doesn't it doesn't require that it be kind of a wide, broad view of the unfolding experience. You can be quite open, like you just using your example. You know, you're sitting there and at, at your favorite Mexican restaurant. You know, wide open. And just noticing the experience come and go, and you bite into hot chili. And uh, without any personal choice, your attention is right there in the experience of heat in the mouth, burning in the mouth, right? The fiery feeling. And so you can just let that 
so the microcosm, the way we practice in the microcosm is the same as we practice in the macrocosm. It doesn't actually change. So the mind can get very, very specific seeing something, one particular condition or one particular aspect of one particular condition to the nth degree or very vast. But the practice, of the, the, the experience of being open or the uh, way of relating with openness is really the same, which is the mind isn't fixating on the particular conditions. But the, another angle in what you said is there are going to be certain conditions that are going to get the ego's attention. It's gonna, they're going to be the cause for that self-centered view to arise. So we may have some moments where that, that self-centered way of being in the moment has been, is being suppressed. It's sort of not so much there. And then all of a sudden, somebody who you're, you've had a real problem with walks in the room. And boy, that will be a trigger very quickly for fear or for whatever to arise. So there are certain things that really trigger that self-centered stance. And there are certain conditions that really allow that self-centered stance to recede. You know, hopefully common ground, for some people at least, some of the time, is conducive. It's a feeling of safety and calmness that it might, it might for some people, allow that self-centered stance to sort of recede a bit. I mean, that's the whole idea of creating a, a meditation center is to support that uh, you know, not needing to take a hard, self-centered stance in the world in the moment. Why don't we leave it here and just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.